to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and today we're going to be chatting about the art of holding space with Marie Fakakis. Imagine this. A colleague comes to you and they're feeling really distressed about something. It could be a student issue, a tricky interaction with a parent, or something that's going on in their personal life. What do you do next? Do you listen deeply and acknowledge how they're feeling? Do you jump in with advice or possible solutions? As big-hearted educators that are under the pump with so much to do, we often find ourselves in the position of fixing and solving. It's like there are so many spot fires that need to all be put out at the one time. And in this episode, Marie is going to share with us the transformative power of holding space and allowing ourselves and others to feel our feelings without the need for an instant solution. Maybe it's the art of holding space that allows the person in distress to find their own solutions. Marie is a highly skilled, accredited mental health social worker, family therapist, presenter, podcaster and trainer who is widely recognised for her expertise in the field of mental health and wellbeing. Marie is passionate about empowering teachers and school communities to facilitate open and productive conversations around mental health and wellbeing, ultimately creating healthier, happier and more resilient young people. In this conversation, we discuss what holding space looks like, the importance of listening without providing a solution, how to improve the quality of our relationships, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marie Bakakis. Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you. It's one of those like long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about the art of holding space for ourselves and others. What do you hope educators will gain from listening to this conversation? I think it's understanding what that means. Like it's a very kind of therapy word when we talk about holding space. And one of the resistances I think I get from parents and teachers is I don't have time for that. <laughs> so maybe hopefully understanding what that is, how beneficial it can be, and maybe busting some of those myths that it may not be as, as time consuming or as laborious as you think. And it may actually free up some time down the track in those interactions with the same person. Yes, I was definitely one of those teachers. Like, I don't have time for this rubbish. Like, I've just got to get on with it. We've got problems to solve, things to do, and let's keep moving. So what is holding space? When I kind of talk about it in a therapy context, it's that silence that you kind of you give someone to, it's almost just like it's that bit in between. So it's like someone might be sharing something and 
we give them space, sometimes not physically, but just in how our body is moving, in choosing not to say anything further. It's just sort of sitting with their experience and what they're sharing and and kind of maybe having empathy or maybe validating, but it's really about witnessing and listening to their experience. So why do you think this skill would be beneficial for educators to have in their toolbox? I think educators are so caring about the young people that they work with. They are so giving. They don't want them to face adversity. Like they're really taking on this role as someone very important in those young people's lives. And sometimes the desire to help, to fix things, to move obstacles out of the way or to problem solve actually creates disconnection. So maybe without meaning to, they're exchanging a practical solution for good quality connection. So it really does help them get more of what they maybe got into the field for, working with with young people or with kids if they're in primary school and having better relationships and more connection, but sometimes not giving space actually pushes that further away. And it's so interesting to think about it like that. It's like this paradox that we care so much that we get so involved and so invested and want things to just work out that in that process we can actually be jeopardizing our connection with our young people because we're not sometimes really listening to what they're saying. We're just jumping forward to think about, I've had this problem before, this is what the solution was. And they don't like that, young people. None of us do actually. Funny enough, everyone who does it automatically really hates being on the receiving end of it. And I have a story from a parent that I worked with recently. It was in one of my parenting groups. And he's like, okay, so if I do all of these steps, and then how do I fix it? I'm like, that's the bit that that's it. You do all the steps, you listen, you hold space, you label the feeling. And he's like, and then what? I'm like, that's it. You've done it. Like, it doesn't have to be a big behavior change or something. The, the tick box, the goal is in the communication. The process is the bit you want. The outcome's kind of irrelevant, really. It's actually in that process that you build the connection that then lays the foundation for ongoing conversation and a better relationship over time. And he couldn't understand this. He's very, he's in a, a kind of a maths and numbers, you know, world for his job. So he, he's like, try like, what's the outcome? Like, it doesn't work like that. You just, just by doing that process, that's the bit. Yes. And we've all had the experience where we've gone to someone with a complaint or an issue and they've jumped in to give us all the solutions. And then we think, that's just not going to work for me. Within my reality, within my lifestyle, that is just not going to work. And you haven't heard me. And then we've also had the experience of sharing with someone and they've allowed us just to share, to feel safe and feel heard. And they haven't given us any solutions, but by holding this space and being supportive, by the end of the conversation, we feel like, oh, I actually know what I need to do now. Now I've had the chance to talk about it. The clarity has come and the next step's quite obvious. Yeah. And it's funny, there's research that kind of backs that up. I think Gabo Mate talks about it a bit in some of his work, but you know, you've had two groups of people both having experienced adversity. Those who talk about it have better outcomes than those who don't. So there's something in the connection, like we're social creatures, we're wired, we're hardwired for connection. And so just sharing is the bit that we need. Sometimes you can't, you can't fix it. You know, if you've come back from the school holidays and someone's had a funeral, you can't fix that grief. You can't take it away. 
but you can give them space to talk about it. You can let them know they're not alone. You can talk about the good memories they had with that person. Like it's in seeing someone, like really seeing them, that intimacy is what is helpful, not so much the fixing of it because some things we just can't fix. We just want to be seen and heard. And it's so deeply uncomfortable because we do want things to be fixed and we do want things to be finished with a bow. And what I'm experiencing more and more is that the challenges are getting bigger for families, for young people, for our colleagues. And so being able to be with the reality is such a skill. Yeah, and I think you're right that the things are getting tougher and it's not something we can fix. We can't take that away. And what pressure does that put on people to think that they can? So we can really release the pressure by telling ourselves that it's our role to be present, to listen, to be calm, but it's not my responsibility to make sure this situation ends up in a certain way. Just last week, I had the most beautiful email from a teacher who had listened to an episode of the podcast and she said, I just had to pull over and cry. And it was those tears of relief, like, oh, I'm not the only one. I've had a really challenging year this year with some really challenging things happening in my classroom and I really thought I was the only one. But by listening to a podcast episode of a courageous educator willing to share their experiences, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I am not alone here. And this is what we can do when we can hold space for each other to really realize that all of us as humans have struggles. No one has an easy ride. And I think the bit you mentioned earlier about wanting to, like it's uncomfortable, so we want to fix it. That's the bit that requires individual work is that's when it becomes about your difficulty tolerating discomfort and wanting to fix it because you can't handle seeing someone sad or you can't handle seeing them in pain. It becomes about you. As selfless as it might seem, as much as it might be masked with kindness, it's actually you can't cope with their response. And so sometimes taking a bit of a look at it that way can be quite confronting because a lot of people do it out of what they think is kindness and self-sacrifice, but it's really their discomfort that they're trying to avoid because sitting with someone's pain can be really uncomfortable. So trying to fix seems a lot easier than just being curious, but it's more about the person asking the questions and their own levels of comfort, which I encourage people to take a moment and think about. Yes, I know myself by default, I don't like discomfort in other people. I don't like other people feeling upset or distressed, anything. It makes me feel distressed that they're distressed. And what I've had to learn over time is I can't take that on. I can support them, I can be with them, but it's not my personal journey, it's not my story. So for teachers listening that would really love this ability to create a little bit of distance so it's not that feeling that if my students are not happy, I'm not happy, or if my colleagues aren't happy with me, feeling that real lack of self and lack of boundaries, where can we start? I think it's starting to think about how you respond to different feelings. So when I run Ginny into Teens for Parents, we have a couple of modules where we really look at what we call meta-emotions. So it's how we feel about feelings. 
So does sadness make us want to make a joke so we break the tension? Does distress make us want to do X, Y, Z? So starting to think about what different emotions evoke for you. And I remember when I was a school counsellor, sometimes I would get kids brought to me and I'm like, like oh, what are they here for? Like they need wellbeing. Why? They're crying. Did you ask them what's wrong? Like, no, no, they just need wellbeing. It's like, no, they don't. Like sometimes we're just sad. We might feel frustrated or angry. That might be shown as tears. They could have gone and washed their face, maybe just gone to the bathroom and gone back to class. But so sometimes it activates in someone this um, discomfort of I can't handle sadness or people shouldn't be sad. So taking a moment to think about those frequently presenting displays of emotion in your classroom or in your school setting and then think how do I how do I respond to that? Am I just trying to make a joke and lighten the mood? Do I ignore them? If I come home and my partner's stressed, does that make me pull away instead of go towards and give them a hug? So starting to think about how you respond or how you feel about other people's emotions then will get you thinking about where your response comes from. It's such a beautiful invitation to think about what happens in your body and what happens in your mind when you witness somebody else feeling distress or crying? And I think, gosh, how many times have people been told, oh, don't cry about it. It's nothing to cry over. You think, oh, is that really helpful? Because we pedestal being happy and being buoyant and being up all the time. Where what I have learned in my experience is as I can be with sadness, jealousy, envy, frustration, all of these difficult emotions, I actually can lean into happiness and joy so much more. It feels like there's so much more depth and breadth and color, but it just takes time that it's actually okay and normal to feel sad. It's an appropriate response to something that's going on in your life. It's normal that you'll feel envious or jealous. Like These are human emotions and somewhere along the line, we have been conditioned to believe not that, not that, not that, only this. I can only be happy with this one. Yeah, and I think pain and suffering are the price of admission to a meaningful life. Like we, we just need those things. But what I tell people I work with is all feelings are fine, but not all behaviours are. So you're allowed to be angry, maybe punching a hole in the wall isn't okay. So we're not trying to get rid of the emotion. We want you know, psychological flexibility. We want appropriate emotions for appropriate situations and then expression in a way that isn't harmful or hurtful. So when you think about people's responses, one of the things I've noticed when I work with not just educators, but a lot of people in the counseling space, when they see someone upset, it might trigger for them unresolved things of I've done something wrong. It's because I'm not good enough. No matter what I do, they're never happy. I spent all day marking assignments and they're still disappointed. So then they respond from where they've been activated. So this is really important. We need to kind of look at ourselves before we also then look at someone else because we're in a relationship. We're in constant like a feedback loop. And so as people are thinking, oh, this holding space sounds good. I think I could move towards it. What would be the benefit to us as educators and the people that we work with if we could improve this ability to be with the emotions that life brings? So I think if you're working with kids, especially at teenagers, so just any, any kids of that age, you're teaching them how they can model it. So they can't be what they can't see. So if you're jumping into problem solve, if you're telling them off, if they feel like they have to suppress their emotions, 
they're never going to learn how to do this. So if you can flip that as you've got this other beautiful role as sort of an educator for social infrastructure, not just kind of book learning and academic learning, they can what they can see and model themselves off what you do. So even just saying, you look really disappointed, I'd be like, they might be like, yeah, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to you in a few moments. Or you look really sad. Yeah, I am. Why don't you go wash your face and you can come and catch me after lunch if you still need to talk. So you're modeling to them, recognizing the emotion not trying to fix it, not trying to problem solve it. And if it gets to the point where it might need a solution, I would encourage you to ask them, what have you tried already? Or what do you think could work in this situation? Because I know when I, you know, I run a business and a podcast and if I'm venting to someone, I'm saying, I'm really struggling with this. And they're like, oh, have you thought about doing this? I just want to like throw my coffee at them. I'm like, it feels insulting because I'm like, well, Of course, I've thought of that, but you're not really listening to me. So it then means in future conversations, I'll either share less or actually don't share anything with that person anymore. So you might think, cool, that behavior is gone. They're no longer crying in class, but maybe they've just learned it's not safe to because, uh, and safety doesn't mean they're going to necessarily get pointed out or bullied, but it's emotionally not safe because I don't get what I need. And so they might shut down or it might exacerbate it because they don't know how to then manage that in a good way. So holding space, showing empathy, emotion coaching helps build emotional literacy. It helps build EQ. And that's really, really valuable for for humans. And it's really valuable for our lifetime where if we're solving problems, we're just solving it for that moment. We're not scaffolding our young people and ourselves for life's bigger moments and bigger challenges. Something that we've been working with a lot with school leaders is that they're finding that more and more teachers are coming to them wanting their problems to be solved, wanting it to be done for them. And more and more leaders are spending much more time in offices with teachers. And it's interesting to see that there are some leaders that just want to fix for their staff. But then there are these other leaders that have this ability to hold space and allow the educator to grow and learn. So it's not just at that student level, it's us as adults. How do we interact with other adults when we notice that things aren't going well for them? Do we jump in and try and soothe and fix? Guaranteed we all do. I even catch myself and I've been trying to do this for the you know over a decade. When I run these uh, workshops, when I talk to people in therapy about this, they really can start to think that they hate being on the receiving end of it. And they maybe consciously or subconsciously changed who they call when they're in distress. So some just think, well, I'm just not going to bother calling that friend because I pick up the phone to call them. They answer and then they start telling me about all the shit that went wrong in their day. And they're like, well, I called you. I wanted to vent. Or they might have someone say, oh, I totally know what that's like. And then they offload. And I see the desire for connection. I see people think, oh, but I'm letting them know I get it because I've been through something similar or this thing helped me. So I want to share that. But when you're on the other side, it feels invalidating. It doesn't feel like you're being heard. It feels like that person's maybe made it about themselves. And it, it, it kind of does create a bit of an emotional shutdown. Yes, it really can create that disconnect of you're not listening to me. You don't understand. And then also I can notice that if we get into this habit of fixing all the time, 
then our young people or the people that we're working with get used to us doing all the heavy lifting and all the work and then they get quite dependent on that. Well, yeah, because they haven't learned how to tolerate the distress. They don't know what that feeling is. And I use this example a lot. Like if you had a four-year-old kid and you've gone out for ice cream and you're walking down the street and the ice cream falls off the cone, you're most likely going to get some tears, right? So if you handled it by saying, stop crying, you've, you've dropped your ice cream, we've got to go, and you grab them by the hand and rushed off and they're like sobbing, they might eventually stop crying. But it's not because they're no longer distressed, but they've learned this feeling, whatever this is, means I get in trouble. So they might start suppressing sadness, not just from that one incident, but if you had dozens of those week by week over a lifetime, if you went down on one knee and you're like, oh my goodness, you dropped your ice cream, oh you poor thing, let me give you some of mine. Again, they might stop. They haven't learned what that feeling is. But if you get down to eye level, you're like, oh, that's so disappointing. Maybe you give them a hug, take a few breaths, let them soothe. Then you can problem solve. How about I give you a scoop of mine or we have time to go back and get one. So they need to learn what those emotions are, how to regulate, and then you might problem solve or boundary set. But if parents aren't doing that, and teachers aren't doing that, you'll get adults who don't know what those feelings are. They feel the discomfort and that might mean that they respond with aversion, they might shut it down, they might think, oh, I'm going to get in trouble, so I'm going to suppress this. They might use alcohol and other drugs. They don't know what to do with that. And like you were saying earlier, if you're not listening to those uncomfortable feelings, you're missing out on the really good ones because you can't selectively just numb certain feelings. If you numb pain and sadness and grief and loss, you actually numb happiness and excitement and joy and love and passion. So you kind of want to have a literacy for both. Yes, a literacy for all of the different emotions and thinking about how can I understand myself better? When a certain event happens, what really makes me go into that maybe over-functional mode? What is it that triggers that? And then also, what are those experiences that trigger my avoid, run away? I know for me, conflict as a reforming people pleaser, anything that requires any kind of anything, like, oh, naturally, I just want to avoid that because that feels really hard. However, that creates so much more work for myself down the track compared to if I just have that conversation in the moment, even though it feels uncomfortable it's actually a benefit for me in the future. I heard people use the analogy of, you know, you're at a river crossing and you're like, oh, I don't want to get my feet wet. But you know that further up the river, there's going to be deeper water and more like obstacles in your way. But your brain's like, but in this moment, I don't want to get my feet wet. So I'm not going to just cross the river when it's, you know, ankle deep, knowing that full well, it's going to be harder at the next river crossing. So I think that's part of that. We have to learn to sit with our own discomfort. And I think the system hasn't set educators up very well to, to have time to reflect on that. Most of them have been educated in a way that didn't include anything around social and emotional literacy or language. And they don't get the support that maybe I get as a therapist where I had supervision, I had peer consultation, I learned about adolescent development. And so there are some really big blind spots. That's not their fault. But it's expected. The expectations have changed to expect teachers to do this, but not have given them the, the skills or the support to do it. And we expect ourselves 
we expect ourselves to be able to do all the things for all the people and make everybody happy. And it's just not possible. We are mere mortals doing the best we can with what we've got. So in your experience, what has helped you outside of the interaction, pair yourself so you have the ability and the capacity to hold space when it's required? It's really tricky to pinpoint where it came from because as a therapist, it's what I do most of the time. So I can't jump in and say, oh, what about this? Or what about me? But maybe that's part of what's been helpful is we're taught, you know, if we're going to self-disclose, what's the function of that? So if I'm asked, if someone's like, I went to a concert on the weekend and I'm like, oh, what concert? Because I want to know, then it's not helpful. But if it's helpful because maybe they're autistic and music is a way that we connect, maybe me showing interest in that serves a function to progress our work. So sometimes thinking about who is this really for? Is it for my curiosity? Is it for my desire? Or is it what they need? And I encourage people to sometimes ask. Like I know people say, I've asked them what's wrong. They said, I'm fine. Well, you can see they're not fine. So instead of just asking, are you okay? Just say, I can see you're not fine. And then offer what you're able to do. Would you like to vent? Would you like a distraction? Or do you want me to help you problem solve or brainstorm? Maybe brainstorm's a gentler way. So being really clear about what you're observing instead of just asking a very general question. Because I know that pisses me off if someone's like, are you okay? It's like, you can say I'm not. So just say you looked stressed. Let me grab some of that load off you. Yes, that feels so much softer and more able to tolerate if someone noticed that I was a bit out of sorts and said, oh, I can just see you're a bit out of sorts. You know, how can I help? Do you want me to listen? Do you want to go for a walk? And providing a few options. And then, then you have the opportunity to say, well, actually, I'd love for you just to listen. I don't want to be fixed. I just want to vent. And I'm really fortunate because I have people in my world that can hold space. You know, some of them are paid through therapy, some are unpaid through beautiful friends. And I also know that there are some people that I can go to and I can vent and they won't pull me up. They will just let me go with it and I can be my sort of child version of myself. And there are people in my world that I can vent, but they're going to pull me up. They're going to be like, yes, yes, with all of this said, Let's go back to that part where you did this at this moment. Like, ah. So it's really interesting, the different people in our life and what they bring out in us. And when you're working with young people, I think it's really important to be specific with the questions because they might not have learned this yet. So saying, what's wrong? How can I help? They might not know. There is a really good chance that those feelings are foreign. They haven't quite made sense of them. And they don't know what's going to help because they don't know what's wrong. So it really sets them up for failing. But if you can say, I'm wondering if you're a bit anxious right now or you look disappointed and then offering a few key things, it gives them something tangible to work with. So I know it can feel like intrusive, but it's trying to tweak the language because it's really actually quite frustrating for people when they're like, well, how can I help? And it's like, I don't know. And it's not actually really good boundaries because what if they finally say, you're like, well, I can't do that. So being really clear of this is how I can help. Yes, this is how I can help and I can help in multiple ways. However, the young person or the adult, whoever it is that we're working with or in relationship with, they have a role to play in being an active participant instead of 
us being the most active one in the room and they're just not on board. Yeah, and they can be quite provocative in their responses. They can have really big bursts of emotions or really big shutdowns. Probably more parents will see that side, but sometimes teachers do as well. So really being clear on your boundaries will help with your overall well-being. And sometimes that can be part of what you offer saying, yeah, you got a grade that you're disappointed with. What I can do is I can give you some some space. Next time, if you want, I can do a practice one with you or I can link you up with a tutor. You might actually give some options and have one of them be just that holding space and then maybe a couple of practical. So helping them know what you can offer, it role models for them as well what they can do for their friends or what they can do when they grow up. So if you can see that as that gift that keeps on giving that they model it off you, they learn, they grow, that's you know pretty encouraging, I think. Oh, that's super encouraging. And imagine if we had young people out at lunchtime when they're sharing their problems, like, oh, would you like me to listen? Would you like me to help you? Gosh, I think about me as a young person at school. That's what we did all recess and all lunchtime was just talk and talk and talk. And we were literally just talking in circles. There was no problem solving. There was nothing actually getting done. But imagine having that ability to be able to have these conversations, not feeling like it's on your shoulders to create the solution. Because I know and looking at the research that so many young people can feel responsible for the mental health of their friends. And teachers feel the responsibility for the mental health of their students as well. Yeah. And it's a really big weight to carry. So hopefully this conversation has really allowed teachers to take a deep breath, to realize that it's our role to support, to be present, to provide options, but it's not our responsibility to make sure that that situation is tied up with a pretty bow at the end. And by doing that, you actually will be helping with their mental health because you're building connection, you're teaching emotional literacy. So in a way, it will circle back around to have those tangible results. That's such a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation that holding space is a gift for us because we're learning and growing as we're managing our own discomfort. It's a gift for our young people. And that's just going to keep ongoing if we're willing to do this work. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yep, sure. <laughs> I am inspired by? I'm actually inspired by the young people that I work with. They are noticing that they're not okay. They're reaching out to parents. They're booking in with professionals. And that was unheard of when I was their age. So I'm really proud of them for sharing that vulnerability and getting their needs met. When life feels hard? I do have a cry. <laughs> and then I keep going and find a way to see opportunities for learning and growth. An underrated skill is? Listening. And I'm looking forward to? The weather improving. So those folk not in Melbourne, you have no idea what it's like. <laughs> oh, life is so much better when the sun's out and there's blue sky. Marie, thank you for the work that you are doing daily in your practice and really supporting young people and the people that support them to be as well as possible with these skills, these strategies. It is such important work. And the ripples will continue to ripple for years to come. So thank you for your work and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks. That was fun. My pleasure. It was a joy to chat with Marie and it reminded me of the healing power of deeply listening to others 
and also the experience of being deeply listened to. In a world that seems to be getting faster and faster, it's more important than ever to slow down and create spaces for meaningful and heartfelt conversations. To learn more about Marie and the wonderful work she's doing in the world, visit the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 106. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action. Mm -hmm.